This episode is supported by Dubois at Grenovation. For irrigation supplies, hand tools, mulch films, pest control, containers, and much more, visit Dubois Egg Renovation at DuboisAg.com and get free shipping on orders of $200 or more. That's D-U-B-O-I-S-A-G.com. And if we can do that at the same time, and if we can do that because it's benefiting farmers and because it's allowing their farms to be more resilient, that's really where we find this win-win-win. And so that's what is most exciting to me about silver pasture is we're not asking farmers to compromise with their needs for production, we're actually asking them to produce more, just in a different way. I'm Jordan Marr, and this is The Ruminant, a podcast about food politics and food security, and the cultural and practical aspects of farming. You can find out more at theruminant.ca, or email me, editor at theruminant.ca. I'm on Twitter, at ruminantblog, or find me on Facebook. All right, let's do a show. Hey folks, it's Jordan, and I'm back after a long hiatus. It's not the first time, and once again, thank you for your patience. I'm really excited to tell you that this is episode one of a batch of five episodes that I'm going to drop all at once, which is kind of a first for the show. So over the next 24 hours, you should see all five episodes popping into your feed. I won't bore you with the details of why I decided to release these episodes in a batch, but suffice to say, I think it's just going to work a little bit better for my schedule. All right, so I don't want to delay anymore. I want to get right to this episode, which is about silvopasture, which I know very little about, which is why you're going to hear from my friend and colleague, Tristan. But I don't need to say more because I've already recorded an intro with Tristan, and here it is. I hope you like the episode, and I will talk to you at the end of the show. Tristan Banwell of Spray Creek Ranch in lovely Lillowood, BC. Please tell the listeners why I'm talking to you right now. Well, Jordan, you... Are a vegetable producer, you produce what I produce eats. I am a livestock producer, so I am definitely more qualified to interview uh, livestock enthusiasts than you are. That's not the script we talked about, Tristan. Please stick to the script. You're, what you want me to just tell you that you suck again? Yeah, just tell me that I suck again. <laughs> Say, just repeat after me, Jordan. What, what, who are you? This is for the recording. Okay. This is for yeah, it right I, now. I, I think, I think. Every word here is for the recording as we're doing it. Jordan, you, Jordan. Su- you suck at livestock interviews. You suck at livestock interviews. How did that feel, Tristan? It, you know, it, it feels unnecessarily cruel. <laughs> okay, I'll say it. I suck at, li- <laughs> I, I suck at livestock interviews. So everybody who's listening, uh, Tristan has... Um, Tristan is a livestock producer, and he's a, he's a dang good one, uh, and he's he's offered um, very generously to record some of the livestock theme content for the show, uh, and that's why he's on the he's on the phone with me right now, and and I am I am very grateful, so thank you. No problem, but let's just qualify that too. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I might be uh, doing livestock, but you know, not on a tremendous scale and uh, small diversified farm, and there's probably some others out there who. Are much larger. Well, let's just agree that you're in a better position to mine some of these topics than I am as regards animal production. So Tristan, welcome on board to the extent you're going to help out a bit. I am certainly grateful and I think the listeners will be too. So with all of that said, what have you got in store for us today for your first uh, full-length interview that you conducted for the show? Mm -hmm. So I was able to have a chat with Steve Gabriel, a 
small scale farmer in the eastern U.S. who is has become an expert on silvopasture and other agroforestry related topics. So he has a couple of excellent books out. But last summer uh, he released silvopasture. And I think it's a really timely topic for, for livestock farms of all scales uh, because silvopasture is one of the very promising agricultural techniques to mitigate and um, have a positive impact on the climate, to mitigate climate change and have a positive impact on the climate, hopefully. So I was able to have a good chat with him and discuss some of the topics around silvopasture with multi-species, some of the grazing-related topics, um, establishment of the silvopasture, and uh, some of the different uses of the of the trees and shrubs in those systems. Very cool. And uh, let's keep this short and sweet. That's a pretty good intro, uh, the interview then in just a minute. Although I do want the listenership to know that uh, you made my life um, a little more, my editing life, a little more uh, miserable than normal by going quite long in the interview. Uh, and there was some really good stuff. So what I plan to do is I've taken a few of the clips uh, out that will not make the interview that listeners are about to hear. And if they're real keeners, they can go and check the, check those out uh, on the, at the site, uh, at the website, theruminant.ca, if they want to listen to some bonus material. Uh, and probably in the show notes, I will outline what that material entails. Sounds good. I think that um, we may be doing it wrong if you want to keep them a little shorter maybe if you do all the livestock interviews and i do all the vegetable <laughs> production interviews um that would really simplify editing because uh just in general we might have less to talk about it's true it's true uh, you're right their episodes would be a lot more streamlined um you're ever the ideas man tristan and that's what i appreciate about you so okay tristan thanks thanks a lot i hope listeners like uh what you've produced for us and uh with with a little luck you'll be back to cover some more topics in future sounds great thanks for the opportunity uh so my name is steve gabriel and uh, i'm a farmer and an educator i work um for the cornell small farms program and um we have a farm with my wife, Elizabeth, in central New York, and uh, we've been here. I grew up in this area, and uh, we've been here on this land for about six years and um, doing a lot of different uh, production, but, but primarily uh, in the last few years focused on silvopasture. I want to set the stage before we dig in a little bit. Um, Project Drawdown, which listeners should check out if they're not familiar, is an initiative to model and rank the most promising existing technologies for climate mitigation over the next 30-year time frame. And Silvopasture ranked as the ninth most powerful solution and as the most promising of all agricultural solutions to climate change on their list. Also managed grazing, agroforestry in general, afforestation, and regenerative agriculture are related and are also high on the list. It seems like a good time for a book about temperate climate silvopasture. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that was the reason I, I got into it. And, and really the goal uh, for me was to pull together what we knew about this practice in the temperate region and, and what we didn't know and try to summarize that. And um, my sense is that we have enough to get started and do this without uh, doing harm to the environment and, um, and to, to rebuild farm uh, economies and, uh, 
and yeah, as you said, because uh, we know uh, there's more and more news about you know managed grazing being a positive force in sequestering carbon. Um, but there's a lot of debate uh, around that, uh, the particulars of that and, and the details, and it really depends on the climate and what we're talking about in the world and some of the context. But you know, the short end of it is when you add trees, it's it's uh, a no-brainer, and 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 what it does is it always gives you a net carbon gain, and so. Especially fast-growing trees and trees that accumulate carbon fast are really going to be key uh, approaches, I think, in the next uh, next decade here. Okay, so I want to start off with the bones of it because this is a new concept for some listeners, and then we'll get into the meat of some of the specific opportunities and techniques. So first off, could you simply define silvopasture for us? Yeah, sure. So it's a really combination of two words. So silvo, as in silviculture, which is... A fancy word for forest management or forestry, and pasture, of course, implies grazing. And so we're combining, uh, really, at the end of the day, we're combining uh, good forestry practices, good grazing practices, and good animal husbandry, and the, the three of those things together, and the symbiosis between them. So we don't do, we don't focus on one of those corners of the triangle uh, at the sacrifice of any of the others. So it's really looking for the symbiosis between those three elements in the system, and and that can be. Uh, really varied and it, there's a lot of room for creativity and flexibility in that so what are what are some of the principles of a successful silvo pasture system yeah so i'd say that the the main principles are we think really cautiously about the type of animal that we're bringing into the landscape and that um, that animals matched very well to the uh, the, the stage of succession that the land is in the the goals of the farmer you know, local markets, all those things, but also um, the management of the animals really works uh, to heal the landscape and not to do damage to it because uh, we do have remnants of a history where trees and animals have had sort of an adverse relationship where the animals have actually done damage to the trees. Um, so we want to think really carefully about the animal selection and how we're going to move them. We, we need to move them. So rotational grazing is really uh, a must in a silvopasture system, and I've worked with many farmers who uh, haven't gotten the rotational grazing system down and then want to do silvopasture, and I, I encourage them to start with the rotational grazing piece and then add the trees, um, because that alone is, is a learning curve and um, uh, and something to consider before you add that next layer of complexity. Um, and then I think it's really important to um, consider the I guess the value that um, diverse forages uh, can provide to animals, and um, maybe we'll get into this interview, but if, if not, I'd really encourage folks to check out the work of Fred Provenza um, and the concept of behavior-based management, because I think what I was most surprised about in studying silvopasture and pulling together this information was, was that missing gap in my education, which was about the inherent wisdom and, and nutritional wisdom that's in, that are in our grazing livestock and the ways that um, we think about forages, we think about providing, you know, a meal for them, and we think about providing a comfortable habitat for them. Um, really what we're talking about with silvopasture at the end of the day is is an ecosystem where the animal is, is able to gain their sustenance, is able to be better protected from the hot summer sun, you know, snow in the winter, heavy winds. Um, we're, we're providing a much more comfortable existence than certainly than like uh, a feedlot right. <laughs> and, and, and even more so than an open pasture. Um, and so the principle there is, is really to look at this as an ecosystem that, that 
uh, that, that the, the animals nestled into and that can gain sustenance from. And that sustenance is not about just calories. It's not just about bulking them up, but it's actually about providing food, nutrients, and, and medicine. Uh, and so hopefully we'll talk about willow, but that's one of my most favorite species in silvopasture because we found it just to be such a critical species for not only the sustenance of our of our grazing sheep, but also for their their health long term. Right. Okay, so we have there some of the what. So let's get into the why silvopasture. We briefly touched at the beginning on the biosequestration potential of the system, um, but could you elaborate on some of the other benefits of silvopasture systems? Yeah. So I guess for benefits. Um, there's, you know, there's a lot of a lot of great reasons to do silvopasture. Some of the, some of the things I I found as a farmer to be I think most important, um, as I mentioned before, is is um, habitat for livestock, so shade, shelter. Um, with silvopasture, we find ourselves uh, increasing the acreage on our farms that we're utilizing because we start to look at the edges, the hedgerows, the overgrown uh, lands that may have been abandoned by previous farmers as really valuable real estate because. They're often already covered in woody brush, and so we can utilize those as pasture without having to clear all of the land. We can, in many cases, put the animals right to work uh, helping open up and clear those pastures. Um, and then I think the biggest one that, that really hit home for us a couple of years ago, in 2016, we had a, a pretty historic drought here in central New York, one of the driest years on record. And, and for us, we had just really gotten into our rotational grazing system, really refined it. Of course, to then encounter this this thing called climate change, and and we had done our first rotation of our sheep in the spring, no problem. By the time they came back around to that first paddock, we had we had planned on that paddock having adequate forage for them, but because of the drought, the grass had literally not grown. Uh, in our case, with our our sheep, which were are the Katahdin breed, really highly adaptable, uh, very their habits of grazing are very much like goats. Uh, we were actually able to put them into the woody edges of our farm landscape and have them sustain themselves entirely um, off woody brush for about 40 days. Wow. And and so the biggest benefit I see is actually as we think about climate change and especially the inc increased amount of drought conditions and, and also the increased amount of heavy rain. So two years ago, we had the one of the driest years on record. This year, 2018, we had one of the wettest years on record. And some of our pastures were responding similarly in that they weren't really regrowing as well when, when they were so saturated with water. Um, and so, again, the woody vegetation, these extreme drought and flood years, um, kind of always looks the same. You know, the trees, the the, the woody shrubs, the, the vegetation quality um, and quantity is they're much more resilient to these kind of conditions. And I think that's the biggest thing for a farmer, from their perspective, that's that's really critical about bringing these types of uh, these types of plants into the grazing system. Right. So that's really increasing the resiliency of the farm ecosystem uh, by mimicking the natural systems that we know are resilient in the face of, of uh, massive changes, in many cases a lot more resilient than our, our monocropping or, uh, or much simplified agroecosystems. Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, it was really instructive again during that, that, that hot dry year. You know, we ha here we have our animals um, shading themselves, keeping themselves cool, and then being able to feast off the vegetation that was shading them. And so it was really, uh, it, it was, again, for us, it was something that those those edges of our farm, those hedgerows and those, those scrublands, those were things that we were like, ah, someday we're going to get to those, we're going to clean them and, and, 
and we'll make them productive. But here they were sitting there just waiting for this, this moment, and, and it really was humbling to realize what we'd over, overseen. Right. Okay. Very cool. And what about some benefits to the community at large, society, uh, our culture, and the global environment? Yeah, so I think um, – and I think it's important to distinguish those those larger benefits, and I, I draw that distinction in the book because um, I think farmers are, are, are challenged with that kind of day-to-day reality of, of what they need to do to get the job done, and I and I, I think the bigger benefits are something we always want to do but you know, are always hard to feel like we can sometimes put our energy to if we're just trying to make our ends meet. Um, and so – when we look at the bigger picture uh, with Silva Pasture, and I've, uh, it's really interesting. I've had many conversations when writing the book with, with wildlife biologists and pollinator specialists. And what was really cool to hear is that the types of habitats they're looking for uh, to improve the, the quality of habitat and the quantity of habitat for, for wild creatures um, really align well with Silva Pasture species and with Silva Pasture systems, or they, or they could potentially align well. Um, I spent many years before I was farming in conservation, and we were constantly trying to figure out ways to justify and fund, you know, reforesting, redeveloping habitat, uh, planting along stream corridors, all these kind of things. And those kind of practices were hard to justify sometimes because there wasn't an economic return, and 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 uh, and we struggle sometimes to, you know, farmers may want to do that, but they may not have the time and energy to invest. But when we see the benefit of bringing the animals in, then we can actually be restoring wildlife habitat while uh, producing food and, and other materials. Um, so I think that's a big one, the, the wildlife piece. And then we can't overstress the climate piece. And, and I think it's, you know, again, it, it really is going to depend on the species we choose and the, the ways that we plant them. But um, our biggest benefit as civil pasture practitioners to the world is to say we can actually raise livestock, we can grow meat, we can have dairy, and we can do it in a way that's regenerative, that actually rebuilds and and is a significant carbon sink. It's not a justification for us to just eat a lot more meat. We actually still need to reduce, especially in developing countries, our overall meat consumption. Um, but it doesn't mean that we can't produce those things in a way. And I think actually it's essential to produce those things in a way that's more regenerative because um, you know our vegetables are still mainly from tillage-based systems, and that's changing too. But um, you know the more we can keep the earth in permanent cover, the more we can stimulate that grassland ecology sequester carbon and then if we can add the trees in uh, we're really creating a system that's, that actually has the potential to really shift um, carbon in, in our global system and I think that's that's great and if we can do that at the same time and if we can do that because it's benefiting farmers and because it's allowing their farms to be more resilient that's really where we find this win-win-win and so that's what is most exciting to me about silver pasture is we're not asking farmers to compromise with their needs for production. We're actually asking them to produce more just in a different way. Right. Oh, that's a really great narrative. And, and, uh, there's so much, uh, so many different storylines in there. Um, the, I, I, there was a quote in the book that I loved about this topic that you said, the benefits of creating a more complex ecology outweigh the time it takes to design, establish and manage such a system. And we're, you know, we're talking about a really complex topic and it can be a little overwhelming <clears throat> as a producer to think about diving into all this, but hearing that whole story and just knowing uh, all the different levels of benefits that you create by developing, developing this type of agro ecosystem is really exciting. 
You mentioned the book that often timber has been the focus of a lot of silvopasture research, I think especially the, what little temperate silvopasture research there is. Uh, but the benefits of shade, shelter, and animal fodder seem like huge opportunities. Um, can you speak a little bit more about the benefits of, of these to the livestock enterprise? Sure, yeah. Um think that uh, I, and I don't want to say that timber isn't a potential valuable yield um, but I think the emphasis has been a little heavy on that I'm I guess I'm a little impatient in some ways and <laughs> and also with the concern for you know the climate I, I don't think we have time to reforest at that rate and so you know nature has a whole palette of tree species that uh, grow fast um, that are uh, really responsive and, and respond well to browse pressure and grazing pressure and, and then it just seems so interesting to me that these species also line up as being some of the most nutritional species from a food right. standpoint for the animals. Um, and certainly we could we could dive into the sort of coevolution of some of these species with grazing herbivores out in more sort of quote unquote wild ecosystems, but it doesn't really matter for the for the moment because I think um, probably the low hanging fruit for civil pasture is really to engage with just a handful of species that. Um, can grow really fast. We can integrate them back in our grazing systems really quickly. They provide food. Uh, they, they're, they're some of the best species for shade and shelter. So I feel like we've got the why. Um, I want to talk, move a little bit into the how, as in how do we start doing silvopasture. So can I quote you to you real quick? <laughs> Uh, here's, here's how you summarize the overall approach. You said, start with the most marginal pieces of land and convert these first, utilizing hardy, fast-growing trees as the basis of the work. So that just about sums it up, and I guess we're done here, right? Right, yeah. We can just move on to something else. Yeah, so yeah, um, in all fairness, it, it, it's a complicated topic, and it, it doesn't feel like a beginner's game. You know, you, you really uh, go through a lot in the book, and um, a producer is going to need to to build up their background in a lot of these topics and your book does a great job of directing us to other resources and, uh, and laying out, uh, the framework of both the, the forestry elements of it, the plant science elements of it and the livestock care elements. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, that was the goal. So that's great to hear, you know, the basics of forest management, the basics of tree care, the basics of grazing. These are all things that, that we can learn pretty quickly and start to play with. And, the question is, um, and I think it's important, it doesn't really matter actually what you're farming. It's if you're curious, if you're flexible, and if you're willing to observe and respond to how the land and the, and the different things you're managing respond, and if you're willing to be humble and recognize that you know, you're not actually in control, uh, at best you're a good conductor of right. these different parts and moving them together. Um, you know, I think we can get started and, and, and not be afraid to, to try things out. And, and that's why I encourage you know, the more quote-unquote marginal pieces of land we're not starting silvopasture in the in the woods where we have the nicest forests that are the healthiest and, and the most valuable to the surrounding ecology we're we're starting our silvopasture in basically the farm dumping ground where right. the farmer before us was was fond of dumping soil and dumping garbage and 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 you know the species in there are, are struggling to, to even make sense of that and so we're cleaning up this space these spaces um we can. I, I feel more comfortable making a few mistakes, but also, you know, often just stepping into those and, and, and using those spaces, we can experiment a bit. But we can also uh, know that we're we're moving things 
uh, I think, in a positive direction and, and certainly not doing the same harm that we might do as kind of trialing things out on something more mature and healthy. Right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So when we look at different ways to, to start a silvo pasture from the, from the tree perspective, maybe we can start by talking about um, converting brush and hedgerows that you mentioned. So I can imagine that almost any temperate climate farm has some of these areas of dense brush, whether they're overgrown hedgerows along your fences, or like you're saying, literally that spot where the old 1960s uh, cedar is parked over on its side. Uh, on our farm, we call it yonder thicket, right? Um, we all have those. Yes. Um, so what are some ways uh, that we can start to use those types of areas for silvopasture? So I think the first thing is always to provide access, and that's access for you, and access for your fencing, and access for the animals. Um, and so one of the strategies I like to do is is to enter those spaces with a roll of like forestry flagging tape, and um, you know just mark the trees that that uh, have have done well despite the challenging conditions. So you know we like uh, the the oaks or the maples that show up in between that thicket and are, are poking their their tops out, and we find uh, lots of wild apples in our hedgerows. That it's it's amazing how well they respond if you start to open them up a bit. Mm -hmm. um, some of our best apple crops are coming from those <laughs> those trees um, and cherries as well. You know these kind of wild trees that have been left there. So kind of opening up the canopy and, and choosing what your sometimes we call it in forestry your crop trees. So what are your best species? you know, that you want to save within that. And then, and then we can kind of work our way down from the top of the canopy and, and, and think about some of the shrubs that we may want to uh, prune back. Uh, I, I often thought about removing these altogether, but again, um, that's such a valuable potential food. And so we're, we're more in the line of pruning things back to kind of open it up so that, and it's again, watching our animals, how do they utilize the space? How can they get in? And, you know, if they can access something, they're going to, chew it they're going to eat it right. um and 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 then again of course we have to get our fencing in there to, to move them in and move them out so um it's really just a process of thinning and removing that material and opening things up and i'm not a really big advocate of always doing that all at once it, there's some cases where that makes sense and you can bring in you know machinery and literally just open up the space leaving some of those canopy trees and kind of opening up the ground but we really like to use our animals and We'll move them into the spaces. We'll prune things and feed them right to the animals. And, you know, we have to, the key, the key thing is that we have to open up the space enough so that, you know, give or take roughly 50% of, of the sunlight shining on that space is hitting the forest floor. Okay. Um, if we want to get grasses and forbs established in the understory. So again, we can kind of do this piecemeal, but that's kind of our end goal is can we bring enough light into that so that forage is, uh, can can exist, and so then we're really maximizing the productive capacity of that as a as a grazing spot. Right. Okay. Great rules of thumb in there too. Okay. So um, now there's. It sounds like from you know whether we're in there thinning the woods, making these decisions, or we're converting brushy areas, we're going to end up with a, a, a lot of different, on one hand, products like potentially. Uh, timber, wood, uh, posts, and on the other hand, a lot of pruned branches, woody debris, and things that are left over after the, the livestock have gone through and pulled the leaves. So what, mm -hmm. what kind of products are you seeing out of, out of these types of thinning and these types of clearing, and what happens to the other non-merchantable uh, debris? 
Well, that is a great question, and it's amazing how quickly you can make a pile that's sort of overwhelming. <laughs> um, and it's it's really important to have a plan going in because um, if you just kind of make a mess, then it's really it's like pickup sticks. It's right. impossible to. There's lots of options. It's just to think about the benefits at a time, and and I think to balance it out with reality of, right. of life. And what I would not recommend is what we've done in some of our spots, which is not really think about it and leave a mess behind us because that mess is just always harder to clean up. Right. Um, so um, if we want to establish forests and so forages and silver pasture, at least what we should do is pile that brush in one area and, you know, say, well, that's going to break down eventually and that's fine, but I don't want to keep it kind of spread out because that becomes hard to establish, you know, forages. It becomes dangerous for animals to trip over, or get stepped on, um, you know, we've had some broken sheep ho sheep hooves on that mm. kind of material. So have a plan for it is, is the bottom line. Right. So you could even end up uh, hindering access to your developing silvopasture mm -hmm. if you leave too much junk everywhere. This episode is supported by Dubois Agrenovation. Renowned for their customer service, Dubois can be your one-stop shop for tools and supplies for the modern farm and market garden. Irrigation supplies, hand tools, pest control, mulch films, containers, and on and on. Visit them at DuboisAg.com and get free shipping on orders of $200 or more. As a market gardener myself, I've benefited from their huge selection, and it's really easy to get someone on the phone to ask questions and build an order. That's D-U-B-O-I-S-A-G.com. Thanks to Dubois for their support. Hey there. One more note while we're talking about show support. Producing this podcast is a ton of work, so if you're enjoying it, please consider supporting it. You can do so at theruminant.ca slash gift registry. That's the ruminant.ca slash gift registry. Thanks, folks. So one question that I have in my mind is, do you find <laughs> that most of these woods and most of these hedgerows, um, when you're working on them, are there forage species there already in the seed bank? What's the diversity of that? Or, or do all these areas need to be seeded? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think that, you know, the seed, the seed bank in the soil is, is a pretty powerful thing. And, and um, I imagine similar where you are, but where we are, it wasn't too long ago that, um, that the land that we're seeing trees on was cleared and mm -hmm. was open land. And and so there tends to be a persistent seed bank that's, I'd say, a moderately good forage, sometimes excellent forage. Mm -hmm. um, often it's a little deficient in legumes, so we're often putting clover in, um, which which can be done as, you know, pretty easily. You can establish that within grasses. Um, so I think that a lot of farm, and it is a challenge when you do these kind of clearings or opening up, you know, the question is, do I want to see what kind of comes up naturally and manage that and maybe overseed it with some other things? Or do I want to use this opportunity where the soil is fully disturbed to seed in something that, that I know is going to be good forage? Mm -hmm. um, and that does come down to partially to cost. So if right. you have... 10 acres of forest you just cleared can you afford to buy the seed for that 10 acres or you know is it is it just more reasonable to see what comes up because i think generally we could say that there's going to be good stuff coming up and mm -hmm. we've been so blown away with managed grazing and, and just what the animals do as they move into a space they graze they move out it rests it tends to just produce really nice forages and then we say well you know it's a little deficient in legume or maybe we need a little more forb species so we'll add those in over time right. um now, the danger with that is if you – and I have a friend's farm who does a dairy that I'm working with that has this problem. If you have a adjacent land that has something very persistent, 
and often called invasive. Right. Um, around us, is, we're talking about swallowwort, which is this very persistent uh, sort of woody vine that likes to grow and is very shade tolerant. Um, we have to be really careful because if we clear the land next to that, where that's established, it can move in very quickly and take a hold. And that's not going to have a good feed value. And it's actually going to exacerbate a problem. Right. Um, so, so that's the question is, you know, uh, and, and we have to be really cognizant of that because we don't want to create more work for ourselves. So um, I'd say as a general rule, probably there's good forages in the seed bank unless we see ourselves with something nearby that we don't want in the pasture. We could probably start there, but if we can afford it, let's, you know, let's add some stuff into the mix. Mm -hmm. And some of that, I mean, you've already talked earlier about uh, that hay that you feed out in some of these areas. And surely you're going to also be seeing not just organic matter left behind from that, but also some more uh, forage seeds. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I don't, we call that bale grazing mm -hmm. around here. And um, that's, that's an amazing effect, especially with cattle where you can, have them stand on an area, trample, eat seed, and, and, and it's worth uh, – I, I used to buy cheaper hay. Now I try mm -hmm. to invest in more expensive hay that has clover seed in it Right. because the clover seed is actually best distributed by the, the poop and the hooves of animals. Right. <laughs> and so we, we just see this pattern again and again when we bring that good quality hay and they feed on it. And, and the next year, that's a beautiful pasture with a, a creased amount of legume in it. So um, I think there's a lot of ways, again, that the animals can help us shape the habitat that we're looking for. That's great. Yeah, and we see that as well. And with those longer rest rotations in the managed grazing in the pastures, so that once you've got that clover established, it's going to be there in the pasture long enough. It can go to seed, the livestock eat that, and then they're distributing it around your farm for you. So it's really cool how yeah, the system totally. starts to pick up that momentum. So I, I want to move on to potentially the coolest and most impactful method of silvopasture conversion, in my opinion, which is bringing trees into your pastures. Of course, my, my first thought is the retired farmer next door who cleared this field is never going to speak to me again, right? Uh, or maybe for some of these intergenerational operations, this is your own grandparents and Thanksgiving next year is going to be pretty awkward. Um, so, so I'm sure you see some of that. There's, uh, there's, some preconceptions and biases. Um, so I'm assuming that smoothing out those kind of wrestled, ruffled feathers, it's going to help to have a solid plan. So w what's important to consider before we get excited and start digging holes and sticking trees in our field? It's important to, to, to mention a couple of things at the outset, which is one that I think our, our resistance to seeing the value of trees in, in a farm landscape is it's something that's very old and embedded in agriculture, and it's really in the continent of North America. It's really embedded in in European settlement and colonization, mm -hmm. which brought with it the plow, and brought with it this notion that you know high value land was cleared land that the trees should be off the land. That's mm -hmm. just, that's something that has been very persistent in in settler colonizer agriculture for a long time. Mm -hmm. So we're we're sort of undoing that. The the, the other thing is. Um, I think it's important to note that from a carbon standpoint, what we've been talking about clearing woody material or thinning the woods, that's really a net carbon loss. So right. if your interest in silvopasture is in carbon sequestration, then planting trees is the only way that's happening. These other actions are, at least on a short-term basis, you know, they're removing carbon from the ecosystem. That's mm -hmm. certainly a, a carbon loss. And we don't really know in the long term if that, that loss is offset by the gains that we have. So there's questions there to research. Um, this is where I think that, again, it's 
it's hard to justify with any farmer say, hey, you know, plant these trees, wait 50 years, and you might make some money. But the right. timber markets may have changed, so you know, we don't really know. Um, I'm interested in those quicker returns and, and those quicker values. So with planting trees, I think what's really key is, uh, first and foremost, is to plant trees like the forest plants trees. Um, uh, if we imagine an open field and uh, the farmer stops mowing that, they stop plowing, they do whatever, they stop grazing it, and they step off the land, what happens? Yeah, it's going to succeed to brush and go through it. In most places that yeah. we're talking about in these temperate ecosystems, through this natural succession into a mature forest eventually. Right. So so the forest is, is seeding into that space, and those seeds are coming from the soil bank. They're coming from birds flying over and pooping them. They're coming from the trees that are surrounding that area that are just dropping seed in, right? And if you look at the ecology of a forest, in an acre or a hectare, you know, hundreds of thousands of seeds are planted, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And the fished forest is only 100 or 200 canopy trees mm-hmm. in that overstory. So when we think about the math, the seed bank is uh, generally uh, tremendously larger than the final trees, the trees that will be there in the long term. That will be that climax overstory. It's actually like 0.01% of the original seeds wow. turn into those final trees. And so that principle is really important to understand because when we plant trees in the field, we often think of them as, well, I better plant these trees in their final spacing. I better plant them 20 feet apart or 40 feet apart. But that's assuming that those individual trees are going to survive and become you know, long-term overstory trees. Um, it's also problematic because the forest in planting that many seeds, some proportion of those sprout into trees and the, the small saplings that grow up really close together are kind of crowded create straight, tall, growing trees. And so in principle, we want to overplant trees and then thin them out over time. So we've been a big fan of planting at very close spacing, like three feet apart, four feet apart, five feet apart in rows. And then knowing that in five years, in 10 years, in 15 years, in 20 years, you know, we're going to thin some of those out and we're going to leave the ones that are sort of the best of that crop. And, and so that's really the way a forest would grow is plant dense and thin. The forest does it through shading each other out. You know, each tree shades out the others. But we can do that with harvesting or with thinning. And then the layout is really important, especially with grazing. Um, the, 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 the pictures that I found with silvopasture is so often this even spacing between the trees like an orchard. Right. And on our farm, we found that to be, in most cases, very impractical. Now, yeah. we do have some orchard spacing uh, because we're planting fruit trees mostly for our own consumption. We do know friends that do orchard spacings and integrate animals, but there is a bigger challenge of protecting each individual tree. Right. Um, what we really like is, is from a lot of these species is to plant in rows, often along contour, mm-hmm. because it makes it really easy to fence them out. And basically the, the edge of our paddock is the row of trees. Mm-hmm. And then the next row of trees is the other edge of the paddock. Right. And so in that way we can exclude a, a whole you know dozens and dozens of trees with the same fencing versus trying to exclude each individual tree and it's just much more management and cost effective right so then you've got your infrastructure that we have to think about like fencing and, and water lines and things like that can almost go along you've broken up a big field into these almost paddocks on contour that are aligned with trees and your other infrastructure which both lines out the grazing area but also protects the the trees that are developing Exactly. Yeah. And the beauty of this is, you know, even 20 years ago, it was really hard to get a hold of portable fencing options that were relatively cheap. 
fencing and rotational grazing meant, you know, wooden posts and barbed wire. Right. <laughs> so now we have so much cheap infrastructure that we can really be flexible with our fencing. And I think that's really what allows us to really propel these kind of ideas forward, you know, quickly and, and efficiently. Great. So <laughs> let's see. So I would love to hear about your favorite species for silvopasture plantings. I love this idea that you've got a bit of a, a palette uh, to choose from because it is so overwhelming to think about all the different possibilities in this type of system. Um, but you have a few favorites and why don't you tell us what you love about those trees? Sure. Thanks. Yeah. That's, that's my favorite thing to talk about. <laughs> right. spend a whole nother hour. Um, so I kind of thought about it as like taking the hundreds and hundreds of species that we could possibly work with and filtering them through some different criteria. Um, so a couple of those criteria are, you know, one that had research in and in being integrated into grazing systems and some kind of clear benefit to a grazing system. Um, another one was uh, that they were pretty adaptable. So I was thinking about the temperate climate very broadly. And, and mm -hmm. so, you know, there might be species, for instance, the mimosa tree actually has good research in use in fodder systems, mm -hmm. but it really is only appropriate for much warmer, you know, subtropical or, um, or pretty, pretty warm climates within that kind of larger temperate lens. Mm -hmm. Um, so I wanted trees I could say that would work in BC, would work in New York, would work in Maine, would work in, in Alabama, you know? Right. Um, and then another, another key criteria was, um, was for me as a farmer thinking about, are these species that I can propagate easily? Because what we've realized really quickly is as much as we want to plant hundreds of trees a year, um, you know, buying all that material in, even though seedling trees can be pretty cheap, um, is, is, is really hurts our bottom line so we've really um realized that a tree nursery on a farm that wants to do agroforestry is probably you know a, an essential piece of farm infrastructure just like a water system is mm -hmm. um so what are species that we can easily propagate and, and multiply and, and hundreds or thousands and if we don't plant them all guess what they become really valuable uh, material that we can sell right. uh, nursery stock is something that's that's actually sometimes hard to find for these species um so my favorite four that kind of fit through all those that that sieve of criteria were willow. Uh, any of the willows? There's 400 different species of willow, so there's a lot of variation in there. Um, poplar or aspen or cottonwood, depending on where you come from. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, black locust and uh, and mulberry. And <clears throat> so those four species, each kind of what's really cool about them is they all kind of complement each other and they basically mimic the forage species that we're often thinking about in pasture. So um, so willow and poplar are kind of like grasses in that they provide a really well-balanced, uh, kind of like the, the bulk of, of the material that an animal could take in and, and gain sustenance from. Um, the difference between poplar and willow, they're, they're closely related as trees. The difference is that willow is very high generally in condensed tannins. Mm -hmm. And the condensed tannins in willow actually offer two major benefits to our livestock. Um, and we're talking about ruminant livestock here because um, monogastrics like pigs and poultry can only utilize a small percentage of green material, but you know sheep, sheep, goats, and cows can can do a lot more. So right. for those ruminant animals, um, willow, uh, the, the condensed tannins will will both help in terms of the interior gut ecosystem. Um, the biggest notable benefit that's been researched is in reducing parasite 
Okay. Uh, complications. And then what's really cool is, is uh, animals eating condensed tannins, it'll also slow down their digestion and actually reduce the methane they're mm -hmm. giving off, which is a huge concern with grazing systems, as you're probably familiar with, because right. that's one of those greenhouse gases that might offset some of the benefits. Mm -hmm. So animals can generally eat poplar and, and aspen and cottonwood all day, and they can only eat so much willow because of those condensed tannins, and, and an animal that's familiar can actually self-regulate their intake. So... So that's kind of like our grasses, and then the, the black locust is essentially our high protein, like our legume, right? So black locust right. fixes nitrogen, so like our clovers, our alfalfas, these high protein, uh, which help. Uh, their, their, their intake is always a little bit less than the grasses, um, but they're really important to build healthy bones, healthy uh, muscle, all this kind of stuff. So uh, that, that's kind of where the black locust fits in. And then the mulberry is basically – like your forbs, like your flowering plants, which are essentially really dense in nutrients that, mm -hmm. that the animals need to kind of complete and round out the diet. So it's it's really ironic for me because I spent a lot of my early career in conservation, and I was like always worried about animals eating the trees I was planting. I wanted to protect those trees from those grazing <laughs> animals, you know, mostly deer. Right. Um, and now I'm really interested in growing as many of these as I can and then feeding them to the animals because – the livestock I'm raising love them. That's our best indicator is mm -hmm. how much they, you know, if an animal gets loose and has an option to eat a tree, they will go for it. Mm -hmm. And there's something in that wisdom. Right. <laughs> there's a reason they go for it. Um, and so so why not design that into the system? Right. That's um, a good paradigm shift, a livestock-directed paradigm shift. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so those four species I would say, and then if you dig into it, all four of those are relatively easy to propagate, really fast-growing. And they can handle kind of a level of browse intensity that maybe some of the you know more tender species can't. And okay. so we can we, just with those four species. And, and then what's really cool is um, also the carbon sequestration value of those because they grow really fast, really fibrous root systems. And so I, I, I can make the argument that even if we just started with those four species, we'd have a huge benefit to our, our grazing systems. Mm -hmm. That's a uh, great step forward getting this you know, the amount of thought that you've put into this and, and getting this little list for people to start off with. And then of course there's, we can imagine there's a hundred more species that you could tie on and think about different productions. Yeah. And, uh, Absolutely. but this is a great start. So, okay. I, I, I don't think we'll spend a ton of time on this, but I, I want to ask a small question that opens up a huge topic. Uh, and maybe we can, you know, I know it's hard to keep this one brief, but I'm imagining most of the people who are interested in silvopasture are already starting with some livestock and they have some idea about, you know, the animals they want to incorporate into their systems. Um, but what are some of the key considerations when you're choosing, if, if you don't have the luxury of already having livestock, if you're choosing a, a breed or a, a species for these systems, what kind of decisions are we looking at there? Yeah. So I think, um, Certainly a big topic, but I think the big the big take homes are you know the, the the type of animals, kind of the first level, then the breed, and then where they come from and how they've been treated up to mm -hmm. that point when you get them in your system. So, so the type of animal is really important. We've we talked a little bit about ruminants, and I think that <clears throat> we say in the book that ruminants are kind of the most silvopasture ready um, because we can actually produce pretty much all, if not all, of their food from a grass-based ecosystem. And, mm -hmm. and, of course, we can incorporate tree fodders and all these other things. Um, so pigs and poultry, really, we have to 
figure out a way to bring in a higher protein sources of food, the systems are not going to just provide that very quickly. Um, everyone likes to dream about the future silvopasture where the nuts are falling from the sky and the pigs are fat and happy, but you know that's that's a little ways off. And also, you know, when we look historically, we have to remember that nut crops, for instance, only come generally once a year and only for like three or four weeks. So what are we going to do with those animals the rest of the season? Right. Um, so I think that, you know, kind of depends on your goals. And also the, is the question is, you know, what, how much land do you have access to and, and how you want to use the animals um, to benefit the ecosystem. And, and so, so pigs are great if you're trying to clear land, if you're trying to, to till up land and really turn over the soil, if that's a goal. But mm-hmm. if it's an unintended consequence, it's a problem. Right. Um, I think poultry uh, have such an important role to play when we start to look at, well, my main crop is actually a tree crop, like a fruit or a nut, um, and pigs to some degree as well, that can help with pest and disease cycles and breaking those pest cycles. Mm-hmm. So if my main interest is managing a pest crop, the animals are sort of supporting that. I think pig and poultry actually have a bigger role there. But if my main crop is the animal product, you know, then it's kind of a different shift and a different focus. Right. Um, and then, so we'll drill down then like, uh, so that's one consideration. Then within each animal, there's different breeds. And I think the breed is so critical. Um, there are breeds of pigs that are more inclined to to to, to graze more and root less, essentially, that, mm-hmm. that can actually gain some of their sustenance from, uh, from more green vegetation than other species. And generally, these are older breeds. These are smaller breeds. Um, they're not as bred to, you know, get fattened off of corn as quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's partially a breed characteristic. But then the third piece is, again, you know, who is taking care of them and how before? Because I think nurture is just as important as nature. So when we were looking around for a sheep breed, um, you know, the affect of the, the the shepherd or the farmer was really important because we saw, even in the same breed, we saw a lot of difference in the sort of temperament and and mothering quality and and sort of resiliency of a, of the same breed but with different managers of that breed so right. um and i think collective knowledge and, and 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 access to breeding stock and around here uh you know every year we're like where are we going to get the ram this year you know um so it's also important geographically to just make sure that other people are raising this breed near you because if you're raising something so obscure that nobody has any of that material you can't really diversify your breed and so one of the reasons we chose katahdin ultimately is because there were five or six other farms around us that were raising katahdin mm-hmm. um and so i think those those things all kind of blend together i think uh, a good resource for folks is the american livestock conservancy um is a really great website that, that talks specifically about breeds that are kind of being lost from a um, heritage perspective but actually have some really good information about breeds that i think fit well into potential civil pasture system. So we get through all of this hard learning, thinking, planning, uh, hacking, chopping, planting, grazing. And then at the end of the book, you tell us, and I'll, I'll quote you again here, uh, it's important to know that the work in silvopasture is never finished. So we're in it with the long for the long haul with these systems. And uh, I was wondering if you could speak for a minute about what what does ongoing monitoring and maintenance look like in, in an established silvopasture system like yours as, you, as you've been working on it for about uh, you know several years now? Well, um, 
you know, I don't know in some ways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think uh, five years is such a little speck of time in the context of even a forest, right, mm-hmm. which could be centuries old. I think that uh, there's a there's. I think the other thing is there's no sort of right answer. There's no right way this should look. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we we are in a period of time where we again have enough to sort of get started to be dangerous, but we also need to be free to experiment and play and share our results. Mm-hmm. Um, if if we follow one template, we're not going to get to where we need to go. Mm-hmm. And so I think that um, you know it's it's a community effort to to you know really really do that trial and error but do it in a way that that's that works for the farm at the same time right? right we don't have the freedom to just mess around all the time but we do have enough to say all right let me try this combination let me try planting the trees this way let me feed the trees to the animals in this way and see if that works but but ultimately we all need to be trying things out and then sharing our results and and comparing notes and that's that's what farmers have been doing forever i mean mm-hmm. any farming enterprise is, is ultimately lifetimes of of uh Lifetime's a quiet adventure, as, right. as a teacher of mine used to say. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so, so it's an invitation, and, and certainly the work's never done. And um, and I'm learning every every day when I'm when I'm talking to folks about this. I, I certainly um, I learned a lot from doing the research, but this is this is a work of hundreds of people that's, mm-hmm. that's in this book. And mm-hmm. my goal is just to bring it together and um, and learn about it. I was I was naive and, and and I wanted to learn, and so you know I I, I found this opportunity to bring it all together and share it with the, you know, share what I learned, but I, I, there's so much, so much to learn. And I, and I hope that the folks that are joining the process and, and share what they learn and, and we can all kind of expand this, this notion together and, and succeed, you know, and success is a, is a funny word because it's hard to know when you get there. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I see is that every year we, we have more food available for our livestock. We're better prepared on our farm for those droughts and floods that are coming um, our animals are enjoying. There's an interesting kind of metric of how they enjoy the landscape and how they explore. I don't, I don't want every paddock on our farm to look the same way to have the exact same amount of food. It's not pounds per dry mat of dry matter per animal. It's not about a mathematical equation. It's something much more, I think, poetic than that. And mm-hmm. and and to me, ultimately, the animals experience. And and at the end of the day, you know, what we harvest off of that experiences is, is is how we can see that we're succeeding that we're changing over time right so to conclude here um i we've got eric tonesmeyer who's a senior fellow with project drawdown and the author of several excellent books including the carbon farming solution uh, he says in the foreword of your book uh that your book quote solely uh, sorely tempts him to become a silvopasture producer and uh i recently heard in a video that you posted earlier this year that he is indeed starting a small silvopasture system so i think that's evidence that your book is working when you've got uh, eric uh, diving into it <laughs> and i'm sure many listeners are inspired after hearing this conversation as well where can someone find out more about your work and about silvopasture in general? Yeah, so we um, uh, we have a website. It's just silvopasturebook.com. And um, we are doing an online course in 2019. Uh, we do do courses on our farm. Um, but also on the website is uh, so a number of links to different resources. So there's a number of great extension publications, university publications, uh, videos, things like that, that folks can kind of, Kind of find and, and browse free uh, on our website. We try to link. So 
visit the website and if you're looking for something in particular, you know, get in touch and hopefully we can help point you in the right direction. Great. And I would encourage anyone interested in grazing livestock or growing tree crops to check out your book, Silvo Pasture by Steve Gabriel. In addition to loads of knowledge, and we touched on some of it, there's great planning resources for figuring out how this is going to work on your own farm. There's a bunch of interesting case studies so that you can hear about other producers who are trying it out, maybe even in your area, and excellent recommendations for further reading in there. So Steve, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today and share your knowledge. Thanks, Tristan. It was real fun. All right. So that's episode one. Four more to come, which will be coming fast and furious over the next 24 hours. I hope you like that, and I know that longtime listeners will have definitely appreciated the greater depth to Tristan's knowledge. I think there's no way I could have conducted an interview with Steve on this topic uh, anywhere near as thoughtfully as Tristan. So Tristan, thank you so much. Everyone look forward to Tristan coming back for the odd interview uh, down the line. And if you have something to tell me about this episode or just comments in general, shoot me an email, editor at theruminant.ca. And please, if you like what you heard in this episode or another, consider sharing it on social media. It really helps get the word out about uh, about The Ruminant. All right, I'll talk to you very soon. See ya. Right outside of the city's reaches We'll live off chestnut spring water and peaches We'll owe nothing to this world of thieves And live life like it was meant to be place that don't want us a place that is trying to bleed us dry we could be happy with life in the country with salt on our skin and the dirt on our hands i've been doing a lot of some real soul searching and here's my final resolve i don't need a big old house or some fancy car to keep my love going strong so we'll run right out into the wilds and graces we'll keep close quarters with gentle faces and live next door to the birds and the bees and live life like it was meant to be